Chapter Six, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The First Winter, Part One. The highest object that human beings can set before themselves is not the pursuit of any such chimera as the annihilation of the unknown. It is simply the unwearied endeavour to remove its boundaries a little further from our little sphere of action. Huxley. And so we came back to our comfortable hut. Whatever merit there may be in going to the Antarctic, once there you must not credit yourself for being there. To spend a year in the hut at Cape Evans because you explore is no more laudable than to spend a month at Davos because you have consumption, or to spend an English winter at the Berkeley Hotel. It is just the most comfortable thing and the easiest thing to do under the circumstances. In our case the best thing was not at all bad, for the hut, as arctic huts go, was as palatial as the Ritz, as hotels go. Whatever the conditions of darkness, cold and wind might be outside, there was comfort and warmth and good cheer within. And there was a mass of work to be done, as well as at least two journeys of the first magnitude ahead. When Scott first sat down at his little table at winter quarters to start working out a most complicated scheme of weights and averages for the southern journey, his thoughts were gloomy, I know. "'This is the end of the pole,' he said to me, when he pulled us off the bergs after the sea-ice had broken up, the loss of six ponies out of the eight with which we started the depot journey, the increasing emaciation and weakness of the pony transport as we travelled farther on the barrier, the arrival of the dogs after their rapid journey home, starved rakes which looked as though they were absolutely done. These were not cheerful recollections with which to start to plan a journey of eighteen hundred miles.' On the other hand, we had ten ponies left, though two or three of them were of more than doubtful quality, and it was obvious that considerable improvement could and must be made in the feeding of both ponies and dogs. With regard to the dogs, the remedy was plain, their ration was too small. With regard to the ponies, the question was not so simple. One of the main foods for the ponies which we had bought was compressed fodder in the shape of bales. Theoretically, this fodder was excellent food value, and was made of wheat, which was cut green and pressed. Whether it was really wheat or not, I do not know, but there could be no two opinions about its nourishing qualities for our ponies. When fed upon it, they lost weight, until they were just skin and bone. Poor beasts, it was pitiful to see them. In Oats we had a man who had forgotten as much as most men know about horses. It was no fault of his that this fodder was inadequate, nor that we had lost so many of the best ponies which we had. Oates had always been for taking the worst ponies out on the depot journey, travelling as far on the barrier as they could go, and there killing them and depoting their flesh. Now Oates took the ten remaining ponies into his capable hands. Some of them were scarecrows, especially poor Jehu, who was never expected to start at all, and ended by gallantly pulling his somewhat diminished load eight marches beyond one ton camp, a distance of two hundred and thirty-eight miles. Another, Christopher, was a man-killer, if ever a horse was, he had to be thrown in order to attach him to the sledge. To the end he would lay out any man who was rash enough to give him the chance, once started, and it took four men to achieve this. It was impossible to halt him during the day's march, and so Oates and his three tent-mates and their ponies had to go without any lunch meal for a hundred and thirty miles of the southern journey. Oates trained them and fed them as though they were to run in the derby. They were exercised whenever possible throughout the winter and spring by those who were to lead them on the actual journey. Fresh and good food was found in the shape of oil-cake and oats, 
a limited quantity of each of which had been bought and was saved for the actual polar journey, and everything which care and foresight could devise was done to save them discomfort. It is a grim life for animals, but in the end we were to know that, up to the time of that bad blizzard almost at the glacier gateway, which was the finishing post of these plucky animals, they had fed all they needed, slept as well and lived as well as any, and better than most horses in ordinary life at home. "'I congratulate you, Titus,' said Wilson, as we stood under the shadow of Mount Hope, with the pony's task accomplished, and— "'I thank you,' said Scott. Titus grunted and was pleased. Transport difficulties for the polar journey were considerable, but in every other direction the outlook was bright. The men who were to do the sledging had been away from winter quarters for three months. They had had plenty of sledging experience, some of it none too soft. The sledges, clothing, man-food, and outfit generally were excellent, although some changes were suggested and could be put into effect. There was no obvious means, however, of effecting the improvement most desired, a satisfactory snowshoe for the ponies. The work already accomplished was enormous. On the polar journey the ponies and dogs could now travel light for the first hundred and thirty geographical miles, when at one-ton camp they would for the first time take their full loads. The advantage of being able to start again with full loads when so far on your way is obvious when it is considered that the distance travelled depends upon the weight of food that can be carried. During the geological journey on the western side of the Sound, Taylor and his party had carried out much useful geological work in Dry Valley and on the Ferrar and Kurtlitz glaciers, which had been accurately plotted for the charts and had been examined for the first time by an expert physiographer and ice specialist. The ordinary routine of scientific and meteorological observations usual with all Scott's sledging parties was observed. Further, at Cape Evans there had been running for more than three months a scientific station, which rivalled in thoroughness and exactitude any other such station in the world. I hope that later a more detailed account may be given of this continuous series of observations, some of them demanding the most complex mechanism, and all of them watched over by enthusiastic experts. It must here suffice to say that we, who on our return saw for the first time the hut and its annexes completely equipped, were amazed, though perhaps the gadget which appealed most to us at first was the electric apparatus by which the cook, whose invention it was, controlled the rising of his excellent bread. Glad as we were to find it all, and to enjoy the food, bath, and comfort which it offered, we had no illusions about Cape Evans itself. It is uninteresting, as only a low-lying spit of black lava, covered for the most part with snow, and swept constantly by high winds and drift, can be uninteresting. The Kenite lava, of which it is formed, is a remarkable rock, and is found in few parts of the world, but when you have seen one bit of Kenite, you have seen all. Unlike the spacious and lofty Hut Point Peninsula, thirteen miles to the south, it has no outstanding hills and craters, no landmarks such as Castle Rock. Unlike the broad folds of Cape Royds, six miles to the north, it has none of the rambling walks and varied lakes, in which is found most of the limited plant life which exists in these latitudes, and though a few McCormick skewers meet here, there is no nursery of penguins, such as that which makes Cape Royds so attractive in summer. Nor has the great ice sheet, which reached up Erebus and spread over the Ross Sea in the past, spilled over Cape Evans in its retreat a wealth of foreign granites, dolerites, porphyries, and sandstone, such as cover the otherwise dull surface round Shackleton's old winter quarters. Cape Evans is a low lava flow, jutting out some three thousand feet from the face of the glaciers which clothe the slopes of Erebus. 
It is roughly an equilateral triangle in shape, at its base some three thousand feet, nine-sixteenths of a mile, across, this baseline, which divides the Cape from the slopes of Erebus and the crevassed glaciers and giant ice-falls which clothe them, consists of a ramp with a slope of thirty degrees, and a varying height of some a hundred to a hundred and fifty feet. From our hut, four hundred yards away, it looks like a great embankment behind which rises the majestic volcano Erebus, with its plume of steam and smoke. The Cape itself does not rise on the average more than thirty feet, and somewhat resembles the back of a hog with several backbones. The hollows between the ridges are for the most part filled with snow and ice, while in one or two places where the accumulation of snow is great enough there are little glacierets, which do not travel far before they ignominiously peter out. There are two small lakes called Skewer Lake and Island Lake, respectively. There is only one hill, which is almost behind the hut, and is called Windvane Hill, for on it were placed one of our windvanes and certain other meteorological instruments. Into the glacierette which flowed down in the lee of this hill we drove two caves, which gave both an even low temperature and excellent insulation. One of them was therefore used for our magnetic observations, and the other as an ice-house for the mutton we had bought from New Zealand. The north side, upon which we had built our hut, slopes down by way of a rubbly beach to the sea in North Bay. We knew there was a beach, for we landed upon it, but we never saw it again, even in the height of summer, for the winter blizzards formed an ice-foot several feet thick. The other side of the cape ends abruptly in black bastions and baby cliffs some thirty feet high. The apex of the triangle which forms, as it were, the cape proper, is a similar Kennet bluff. The hole makes a tricky place on which to walk in the dark for the surface is strewn with boulders of all sizes and furrowed and channelled by drifts of hard and icy snow, and quite suddenly you might find yourself prostrate upon a surface of slippery blue ice. It may be easily imagined that it is no seemly place to exercise skittish ponies or mules in a cold wind, but there is no other place when the sea ice is unsafe. Come and stand outside the hut door. All around you, except where the cape joins the mountain, is the sea. You are facing north, with your back to the great ice barrier and the pole, with your eyes looking out of the mouth of McMurdo Sound over the Ross Sea, towards New Zealand, two thousand miles of open water, pack and bergs. Look over the sea to your left. It is midday, and though the sun will not appear above the horizon, he is still near enough to throw a soft yellow light over the western mountains. These form the coastline thirty miles across the Sound, and as they disappear northwards, are miraged up into the air and float black islands in a lemon sky. Straight ahead of you there is nothing to be seen but black open sea, with a high light over the horizon which you know betokens pack, this is ice blink. But as you watch there appears and disappears a little dark smudge. This puzzles you for some time, and then you realise that this is the mirage of some far mountain, or of Beaufort Island, which guards the mouth of McMurdo Sound against such traffic as ever comes that way, by piling up the ice-flows across the entrance. As you still look north, in the middle distance jutting out into the sea is a low black line of land, with one excrescence. This is Cape Royds, with Shackleton's old hut upon it. The excrescence is High Peak, and this line marks the first land upon the eastern side of McMurdo Sound which you can see, and indeed is actually the most eastern point of Ross Island. It disappears abruptly behind a high wall, and if you let your eyes travel round towards your right front, you can see that the wall is perpendicular cliff, two hundred feet high of pure green and blue ice, 
which falls sheer into the sea, and forms, with Cape Evans on which we stand, the bay which lies in front of our hut, and which we called North Bay. This great ice-cliff, with its crevasses, towers, bastions, and cornices, was a never-ending source of delight to us. It forms the snout of one of the many glaciers which slides down the slopes of Erebus, in smooth slopes and contours where the mountains underneath is of regular shape, in impassable ice-falls where the underlying surface is steep or broken. This particular ice-stream is called the Barn Glacier, and is about two miles across. The whole background from our right front to our right rear, that is from north-east to south-east, is occupied by our massive and volcanic neighbour Erebus. He stands 13,500 feet high. We live beneath his shadow, and have both admiration and friendship for him, sometimes perhaps tinged with respect. However, there are no signs of dangerous eruptive disturbances in modern times, and we feel pretty safe despite the fact that the smoke which issues from his crater sometimes rises in dense clouds for many thousands of feet, and at others the trail of his plume can be measured for at least a hundred miles. If you are not too cold standing about, it does not pay to stand about at Cape Evans, let us make our way behind the hut and up Windvane Hill. This is only some sixty-five feet high, yet it dominates the rest of the Cape, and is steep enough to require a scramble, even now when the wind is calm. Look out that you do not step on the electric wires which connect the wind-vane cups on the hill with the recording dial in the hut. These cups revolve in the wind, the revolutions being registered electrically. Every four miles a signal was sent to the hut, and a pen working upon a chronograph registered one more step. There is also a meteorological screen on the summit, which has to be visited at eight o'clock each morning in all weathers. Arrived on the top, you will now be facing south, that is, in the opposite direction to which you were facing before. The first thing that will strike you is that the sea, now frozen in the bays, though still unfrozen in the open sound, flows in nearly to your feet. The second, that though the sea stretches back for nearly twenty miles, yet the horizon shows land or ice in every direction. For a ship this is a cul-de-sac, as Ross found seventy years ago but as soon as you have grasped these two facts, your whole attention will be riveted to the amazing sight on your left. Here are the southern slopes of Erebus, but how different from those which you have lately seen. Northwards they fell in broad, calm lines to a beautiful stately cliff which edged the sea. But here all the epithets and all the adjectives which denote chaotic immensity could not adequately tell of them. Visualise a torrent ten miles long and twenty miles broad, Imagine it falling over mountainous rocks, and tumbling over itself in giant waves. Imagine it arrested in the twinkling of an eye, frozen and white. Countless blizzards have swept their drifts over it, but have failed to hide it, and it continues to move. As you stand in the still cold air, you may sometimes hear the silence broken by the sharp reports, as the cold contracts it, or its own weight splits it. Nature is tearing up that ice as human beings tear paper. The sea-cliff is not so high here, and is more broken up by crevasses and caves, and more covered with snow. Some five miles along the coast the white line is broken by a bluff and black outcrop of rock, this is Turk's Head, and beyond it is the low white line of Glacier Tongue, jutting out for miles into the sea. We know, for we have already crossed it, that there is a small frozen bay of sea-ice beyond, but all we can see from Cape Evans is the base of the Hut Point Peninsula with a rock outcrop just showing 
where the Hudson Cliffs lie. The peninsula prevents us from seeing the barrier, though the barrier wind is constantly flowing over it, as the clouds of drift now smoking over the cliffs bear witness. Farther to the right still, the land is clear. Castle Rock stands up like a sentinel, and beyond are arrival heights and the old craters we have got to know so well during our stay at Hut Point. The Discovery Hut, which would, in any case, be invisible at fifteen miles, is round that steep rocky corner which ends the peninsula, due south from where we stand. There remains undescribed the quadrant which stretches to our right front from south to west. Just as we have previously seen the line of the western mountains disappearing to the north miraged up in the light of the midday sun, so now we see the same line of mountains running south, with many miles of sea or barrier between us and them. On the far southern horizon, almost in transit with Hut Point, stands Minna Bluff, some ninety miles away, beyond which we have laid the Wonton Depot, and from this point, as our eyes move round to the right, we see peak after peak of these great mountain ranges, Discovery, Morning, Lister, Hooker, and the glaciers which divide them one from another. They rise almost without a break to a height of thirteen thousand feet. Between us and them is the barrier to the south, and the sea to the north. Unless a blizzard is impending or blowing, they are clearly visible, a gigantic wall of snow and ice and rock, which bounds our view to the west, constantly varied by the ever-changing colour of the Antarctic. Beyond is the plateau. We have not yet mentioned four islands, which lie within a radius of about three miles from where we stand. The most important is a mile from the end of Cape Evans, and is called Inaccessible Island, owing to the inhospitality of its steep lava side, even when the sea is frozen. We found a way up, but it is not a very interesting place. Tent Island lies farther out, and to the south-west. The remaining two, which are more islets than islands, rise in front of us in South Bay. They are called Great and Little Razorback, being ribs of rock, with a sharp divide, in the centre. The latter of these is the refuge upon which Scott's party returning to Cape Evans pitched their camp when overtaken by a blizzard some weeks ago. All these islands are of volcanic origin and black in general colour, but I believe there is evidence to show that the lava stream which created them flowed from McMurdo Sound rather than from the more obvious craters of Erebus. Their importance in this story is the indirect help they gave in holding in sea ice against southerly blizzards and in forming landmarks which proved useful more than once to men who had lost their bearings in darkness and thick weather. In this respect also several icebergs which sailed in from the Ross Sea and grounded on the shallows which run between Inaccessible Island and the Cape, as well as in South Bay, were most useful as well as being interesting and beautiful. For two years we watched the weathering of these great towers and bastions of ice by sea and sun and wind, and left them still lying in the same positions but mere tumbled ruins of their former selves. Many places in the panorama we have examined show black rock, and the cape on which we stand exposes at times more black than white. This fact always puzzles those who naturally conclude that all the Antarctic is covered with ice and snow. The explanation is simple, that winds of the great velocity which prevails in this region will not only prevent snow resting to windward of outcropping rocks and cliffs, but will even wear away the rocks themselves. The fact that these winds always blow from the south, or southerly, causes a tendency for this aspect of any projecting rock to be blown free from snow, while the north or lee side is drifted up by marbled and extremely hard tongue of snow, which disappears into a point at a distance which depends upon the size of the rock. 
Of course, for the most part, the land is covered to such a depth by glaciers and snow that no wind will do more than pack the snow or expose the ice beneath. At the same time, to visualise the Antarctic as a white land is a mistake, for not only is there much rock projecting wherever mountains or rocky capes and islands rise, but the snow seldom looks white, and if carefully looked at, will be found to be shaded with many colours, but chiefly with cobalt blue or rose madder, and all the graduations of lilac and mauve which the mixture of these colours will produce. A white day is so rare that I have recollections of going out from the hut or the tent, and being impressed by the fact that the snow really looked white. When, to the beautiful tints in the sky, and the delicate shading on the snow are added, perhaps the deep colours of the open sea, with reflections from the ice foot and ice cliffs in it, all brilliant blues and emerald greens, then, indeed, a man may realise how beautiful this world can be, and how clean. Though I may struggle with inadequate expression to show the reader that this pure land in the south has many gifts to squander upon those who woo her, chiefest of these gifts is that of her beauty. Next, perhaps, is that of grandeur and immensity, of giant mountains and limitless spaces, which must awe the most casual, and may well terrify the least imaginative of mortals. And there is one other gift which she gives with both hands, more prosaic, but almost more desirable, that is the gift of sleep. Perhaps it is true of others, as is certainly the case with me, that the more horrible the conditions in which we sleep, the more soothing and wonderful are the dreams which visit us. Some of us have slept in a hurricane of wind and a hell of drifting snow and darkness with no roof above our heads, with no tent to help us home, with no conceivable chance that we should ever see our friends again, with no food that we could eat, and only the snow which drifted into our sleeping-bags, which we could drink day after day and night after night. We slept not only soundly, the greater part of these days and nights, but with a certain numbed pleasure. We wanted something sweet to eat, for preference, tinned peaches in syrup. Well, that is the kind of sleep the Antarctic offers you at her worst, or nearly at her worst. And if the worst or best happens, and death comes for you in the snow, he comes disguised as sleep, and you greet him rather as a welcome friend than as a gruesome foe. She treats you thus when you are in the extremity of peril and hardship. Perhaps then you can imagine what draughts of deep and healthy slumber she will give a tired sledger at the end of a long day's march in summer, when, after a nice hot supper, he tucks his soft, dry, warm, furry bag round him, with the light beating in through the green silk tent, the homely smell of tobacco in the air, and the only noise that of the ponies tethered outside, munching their supper in the sun. And so it came about that during our sojourn at Cape Evans, in our comfortable warm roomy home, we took our full allotted span of sleep. Most were in their bunks by ten p.m., sometimes with a candle and a book, not rarely with a piece of chocolate. The acetylene was turned off at ten-thirty, for we had a limited quantity of carbide, and soon the room was in complete darkness, save for the glow of the galley stove, and where a splash of light showed the night watchman preparing his supper. Some snored loudly, but none so loud as Bowers. Others talked in their sleep, the more so when some nasty experience had lately set their nerves on edge. There was always the ticking of many instruments, and sometimes the ring of a little bell. To this day I do not know what most of them meant. On a calm night no sound penetrated except, perhaps, the whine of a dog, or the occasional kick of a pony in the stable outside. Any disturbance was the night watchman's job. But on a bad blizzard night, the wind, as it tore seawards over the hut, 
roared and howled in the ventilator let into the roof. In the more furious gusts the whole hut shook, and the pebbles picked up by the hurricane scattered themselves noisily against the woodwork of the southern wall. We did not get many nights like these the first winter. During the second we seemed to get nothing else. One ghastly blizzard blew for six weeks. The night watchman took his last hourly observation at 7 a.m., and was free to turn in after waking the cook and making up the fire. Frequently, however, he had so much work to do that he preferred to forego his sleep and remain up. For instance, if the weather looked threatening, he would take his pony out for exercise as soon as possible in the morning, or those lists of stores were not finished, or that fish-trap had to be looked after, all kinds of things. A sizzling on the fire and a smell of porridge and fried seal-liver heralded breakfast, which was at 8 a.m. in theory, and a good deal later in practice. A sleepy eye might see the meteorologist stumping out, Simpson always stumped, to change the records in his magnetic cave and visit his instruments on the hill. Twenty minutes later he would be back, as often as not covered with drift, and his wind helmet all iced up. Meanwhile the more hardy ones were washing, that is, they rubbed themselves all shivering with snow, of a minus temperature, and pretended they liked it. Perhaps they were right, but we told them it was swank. I'm not sure that it wasn't. It should be explained that water was seldom possible in a land where ice is more abundant than coal. One great danger threatened all our meals in this hut, namely that of a cag. A cag is an argument, sometimes well informed and always heated upon any subject under the sun, or temporarily, in our case, the moon. They range from the pole to the equator, from the barrier to Portsmouth Hard and Plymouth Hoe. They began on the smallest of excuses, they continued through the widest field, they never ended, they were left in mid-air, perhaps to be caught up again and twisted and tortured months after. What caused the cones on the ramp? The formation of ice-crystals, the names and order of the public houses, if you left the main gate of Portsmouth Dockyard, and walked to the Unicorn Gate, if you ever reached so far, the best kinds of crampons in the Antarctic, and the best place in London for oysters, the ideal pony-rug. Would the wine-steward at the Ritz look surprised if you asked him for a pint of bitter? Though the Times Atlas does not rise to public houses, nor Chambers' Encyclopedia sink to behaviour at our more expensive hotels, yet they settled more of these disputes than anything else. On the day we are discussing, though mutterings can still be heard from Nelson's cubicle, the long table had been cleared and everyone is busy by nine-thirty. From now until supper at seven, work is done by all, in some form or other except for a short luncheon interval. I do not mean for a minute that we all sit down, as a man may do in an office at home, and solidly grind away for upwards of nine hours or more, not a bit of it. We have much work out of doors, and exercise is a consideration of the utmost importance, but when we go out, each individual quite naturally takes the opportunity to carry out such work as concerns him, whether it deals with ice or rocks, or dogs or horses, meteorology or biology, tide-gauges or balloons. When blizzards allowed, the ponies were exercised by their respective leaders between breakfast and midday, when they were fed. This exercising of animals might be a pleasant business. On the other hand, it could be at the juice and all. It depended on the pony and the weather. A blubber fire was kept burning in the snug stable, which was built against the lee wall of the hut. The ponies were, therefore, quite warm, and found it chilly directly they were led outside, even if there was no wind. The difficulties of exercising them in the dark were so great that, with the best intentions in the world, it was difficult to give them sufficient work for the good feeding they received. Add to this the fact that one at any rate of these variable animals was really savage, 
and that most of them were keen to break away if possible, and the hour of exercise was not without its thrills, even on the calmest and most moonlight days. The worst days were those when it was difficult to say whether the ponies should be taken out onto the sea-ice or not. It was thick weather that was to be feared, for then, if the leader once lost his bearings, it was most difficult for him to return. An overcast sky, light falling snow, perhaps a light northerly wind, generally meant a blizzard. But the blizzard might not break for twenty-four hours. It might be upon you in four seconds. It was difficult to say whether the pony should miss his exercise, whether the fish-trap should be raised, whether to put off your intended trip to Cape Royds. Generally the risks were taken, for, on the whole, it is better to be a little over-bold than a little over-cautious, while always there was a something inside urging you to do it just because there was a certain risk, and you hardly like not to do it. It is so easy to be afraid of being afraid. Let me give one instance. It must be typical of many. It was thick as it could be, no moon, no stars, light falling snow, and not even a light breeze to keep in your face to give direction. Bowers and I decided to take our ponies out, and once over the tide-crack, where the working sea-ice joins the fast land-ice, we kept close under the tall cliffs of the Barn Glacier. So far all was well, and also when we struck along a small crack into the middle of the bay, where there was a thermometer-screen, this we read with some difficulty by the light of a match, and started back towards the hut. In about a quarter of an hour we knew we were quite lost, until an iceberg which we recognised showed us that we had been walking at right angles to our course, and got us safe home. End of chapter 6, part 1